Didn't our band do a great job with that? Man, I love it. Let's give it up. Man, I love Dan. Our team do great. Hey, our kids, you can go ahead and slide out to the back. You see our Redemption Kids volunteers back there. Hey, if you're new with us and you've got a child and you haven't checked them in yet, just follow our crew out the top doors back there. They'll get you squared away, checked in, and show you where to go. Well, hey, for the rest of us, let's grab a copy of God's Word, um, either Bible, turn a Bible on, um, on your phone or device. If you don't have either of those, we've got some out with our ushers out, uh, out the doors here. It's going to be important for you to have a copy of God's Word. We're just going to be walking through Acts chapter 8 today. So even if you've got to slide out and go grab a copy, go do that because um, I am anticipating what God is going to do and speaking to us through His Word today. My name is John Chastine, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church, and honored to bring God's Word here to you today. If you've got one of the Bibles that we've provided, that's on page 918. We're going to be in Acts chapter 10, page 918. As you're turning there, let me just give a brief recap review where we've been in Acts and and setting the stage for where we're headed today. When we started Acts back in January, we started with a theme called overflowing. In fact, our vision as a church this year is the fullness of God in us, what is it? Overflowing through us. And so this, this, this series through Acts has been focusing on the work of God in us. We see the Spirit at work in the early church, that same Spirit in us, overflowing in all the areas of our life. The, in particular, the past few weeks, we've taken that overflowing And we've said, hey, you know what? Let's apply that to our neighborhoods. What does it look like to overflow in our neighborhood? So on our worship guides today, you'll see again, we've attached this little uh, card that says, who is my neighbor? I would just encourage you, don't, man, keep, keep filling this out. Add information in. Use it as a prayer guide for your neighbor, for those that are around you. Um, And and let me tell you this, I have been super encouraged. A number of you have either pulled me aside or shot a text and said, hey, I want to tell you about what God's doing in my neighborhood. And and my my guess is that there's more stories than ones that have been told me. Let let me just share one with you. Um, You guys know we've got some interns that are going to be with us this summer. Uh, They arrived last week. Um, Here's a cool, cool story. Last week we looked at how God is sovereign and there are no accidents that happen in where we live, either where we live or the neighbors God's put on our street. So our interns, they're staying at Tufts University this summer. They moved in on Monday, got locked in, getting everything squared away, and providentially, fire alarm goes off Monday evening. they just gotten settled in. I mean, you can, like, who enjoys a fire alarm? I mean, those are frustrating, like, you, like, Man, this is the last thing I want to do, but here's the cool thing, as, as the team shared with me. As soon as everybody got outside, it was like, God has forced everybody at Tufts University near where they live outside. And so they're like, let's go meet people. I mean, they had just moved in at Tufts. And so providentially, like, I, I hear people getting, like the story being telling me, getting in conversations finding people's names, getting numbers, lining up potential opportunities to connect with them. I mean, isn't that cool? I mean, the the cool part about it was I was so encouraged that the team saw that not as a frustrating thing, but as an opportunity. There are opportunities like that, my guess, that are happening every day. So let's continue to pray. God, give us eyes to see how you're working to connect us up with our neighbors in everyday life, even potential interruptions. Well, Here's some of the things that we've, we've learned over the past few weeks. One, we've, we've looked at God as sovereign over streets. Another one that we looked at last week as we studied the conversion of Saul is this. If God can save Saul, the chief of sinners, he can save anyone on our streets. There is no one on our streets too far or too hard for God. That gives us encouragement. Here's what we're going to do today. Today, we're going to look what some say is one of the most significant chapters here in the book of Acts, in Acts 10. And we are going to see this. God can not only save anyone on our streets, God can save 
everyone on our streets. So here's what let's do. Let's jump in the text here. Go with me before we jump into chapter 10. Go back to chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 31. Acts 9, verse 31. This is the summary statement that wrapped up our text last week. It says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. You see, one of the themes that we've seen throughout Acts is that God has a mission, is God has a plan, and he's moving this thing forward. And you see the, the Trinitarian God at work, God planning, Jesus coming, commissioning, accomplishing redemption, commissioning his disciples, and the Spirit's work now as the disciples are, are being filled and, and courageous and bold in proclaiming the gospel, the church is multiplying. Now, when we pick up in verse 32, we transition from this section about Saul and his conversion, and Peter comes back on the scene. 9.32, it says this, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time in these sections. I'm actually just going to give you a quick overflow, a, a, a flyby real quick. What happens here is Peter goes and does two miracles and proclaims Jesus. The first one we see here in Lydda, he heals a lame man named Aeneas. And then after that, in verses 36, all the way down through 43, he heads to Joppa because there's a disciple named Dorcas who had died, and Peter restores her life. Now pick back up here with me in chapter 9, verse 42. And this is what God's word says. And it says, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he, speaking of Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. That gets us. That's just the context for chapter 10. In chapter 10, what we're going to see is an encounter between Peter, who right now is in Joppa, and a guy named Cornelius, which we're introduced here in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. So let's keep reading. Chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Now, I got a map up here. Let me just set the scene, set, set the scene for where we're at. We looked at this last week. You can see last week, it was Saul on the road to Damascus. Um, and at the end of the story, he faced persecution. So he was sent down to Caesarea. And that line heading up is where he was shipped on up to Tarsus. Now, we're back in Caesarea. This is where um, Cornelius is. You'll see here, right on the coast here, Caesarea was roughly 31 miles north of Joppa. So Peter is in Joppa. Cornelius, 31 miles north in Caesarea. It tells us that Cornelius is a centurion, which means he was a commander of 100 men, and what it says here was the Italian cohort. As a result of this, he would have been socially wealthy and prominent. We're not, we're not talking about somebody who was a lower class. This was a, a pretty high up guy um, there in Caesarea. But the interesting part is how it describes his spirituality. Look at what the text says here. In verse 2, it, it says, he was a devout man who feared God. He gave alms generously, and he prayed continually. What do you think about those? Those are good things, right? No, nothing that I see there that's, um, that's striking. Man, this is encouraging about what we see about who this guy is. Let me just unpack it a little bit. You see his devotion displayed in his giving and his praying. What's it say about his giving? He gave generously to the people, and then is praying, he prayed continually. There's the devotion we see displayed here. But it says this, he feared 
God. Bach, one of the commentators on the book of Acts, says, most likely what was happening here is that he had been exposed to the God of Israel, and he had responded positively to it, but he had not embraced in any detailed way any of the elements of the Jewish legal practice. So he'd been introduced to this God of Israel, but he hadn't been circumcised. He, he hadn't become a full-on Jew. He, he was a fear of this God, but he was, may you say, standing at a distance from going all in. Let me just pose a question here. We're going to wrestle with this throughout our time today. At this point, was Cornelius a born-again, saved, headed for eternal life? You don't have to answer out loud. I want you to think about that. Like, think of how he describes, how the text describes him. Where, where is Cornelius? Has he crossed over from death to life to salvation? Or is there something that is still lacking? Well, the good news is the sermon isn't over. We're, we're going to keep reading and, and we're going to get some answers here. But I want to go ahead and pose that because we're going we're to come back to that as we continue through the text. So let's keep reading. What else does it tell, tell us about this guy, Cornelius? Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, that would have been 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who was called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Wow. You know what this reminds me of? You guys remember our story last week? You remember hearing about how, man, God was at work in Saul's life and in all those, all those circumstances involving with him and the scales falling off of, off of his eyes. We see God is continuing to work in people. This is what God's doing here in Cornelius's life. Now, let me just pause here for a second because there's something interesting that's described here. Look, look here about Cornelius in, um, in verse 4. It says, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. What does that mean? This word memorial is the only occurrence of this word in the entire New Testament. But it has, it has a history in the Old Testament and connotations of sacrificial language. Like when you would offer a sacrifice and there was something like a pleasing aroma that would come up before God. And so what would it be in indicating is that someone or something had been remembered by God. Now, we're going to come back to that because there, there's some really cool stuff going on here on, on Cornelius, who he is, and his relationship with God and what God's doing in Christ. But what's evident is just as God was moving this mission forward and working in Saul's life in the previous chapter, he's continuing to work as we see here in Cornelius. So the, the gist of it is God says to Cornelius, you got to find this guy named Simon in Joppa. Again, specific details. He hey, go look for this. No, Simon, who's Peter? He's with one Simon, a tanner. He's in Joppa. Go find him. So what's Cornelius says? He gets those. He's, he's, a, he's over 100. So he gets a few of those. Um, and he sends them to Joppa. We pick up here in verse 9. We hit pause on Cornelius, and now we turn to Peter in verse 9. It says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on a housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Let me just hit pause here for a second. Going up on a housetop. You may not think about like, hey, 
You know, it's noon today. I'm going to head up on the housetop back in, in the area here of Judea. Um, this would have been an easy feat because the houses had flat roofs and most of them had ladders or stairs as a way to access them. So he's headed up to the rooftop. It's about noon. He's headed to pray. Let's continue reading in verse 10. And it says, and he became hungry. Peter's human, all right? I can relate with that. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. All right, let's hit pause here for a second. We see he's on the rooftop. He's praying, he's hungry, some people are preparing a meal for him, and while all that's going on, it says he fell into a trance. The language here is similar to that of a vision. Now here's what I want us to see. I want us to think about what does he see, and then what does he hear? And so just looking back, we see he sees this big sheet coming from all the four corners of the earth, and it's got all kinds, the text says here, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. That's what he sees. And then he hears this voice. Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And then you have his response. By no means, Lord. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. Because we got to unpack some of what's going on in the background for us to understand about what's going on here in the text. First of all, we're, we're going to see later on it's confirmed. But this reference to all kinds of animals meant that his vision included both clean and unclean animals. You may say, well, what do you mean by that? Why is that important? Well, here's the deal. If you would go in the Old Testament, and we don't have time today because I've got I to preach through Acts. But if we were to go to Leviticus chapter 11, you have a whole chapter here in the Mosaic Law where God is given instructions on what they can eat, what is clean, and what they can't eat, what they were forbidden from eating, what is unclean. And at the end of this chapter, I'll just throw a few verses up here that summarize it, that give you, you may wonder, like, why? Like, what's God up to here? This is what it says here in Leviticus 11, verses 44 through 47, God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters, and every creature that swarms on the ground, to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. One of the thing, things that is clear in God giving these instructions is what? What's God after? I heard somebody say it. What did you say? Holiness. When God chose Israel, they were to be a chosen people, a, a people that, that is holy, a people for the Lord that is set apart and different from all of the pagan nations, along with their idol worship and sacrifices that went on. And so that is what God's after, a people that are holy, that are set apart. Now think about this. 
What do you know about the relationship between Jews and the Gentiles? Actually, you know what? Let's look forward. I'm going I'm to just go ahead and tease it out. Look forward in the text. Um, let's see here. Let's go to, go to verse 27. Actually, go to verse 25. It says, When Peter entered, Cornelius met with him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, this is what Peter says, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. We'll hit pause there. We'll, we'll come back and finish it later. But what I'm wanting you to see here, there's more to going on in this vision with Peter and God than about the diet, about his hunger and what he should be eating. What's going on is this food is a picture of clean versus unclean, but also is for the Jews clarifying, hey, what makes you clean and unclean, and will you be unclean if you hang out with somebody who's eating these unclean animals? Does that help you understand how why Peter responded the way he did now? Going back to chapter 10, verse 13. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. That word kill has, has sacrificial. It's not just like, hey, go kill an animal and get some food. There's actually has sacrificial um, connections there. So what could be even being implied here is a, is a religious activity that's going on with this killing. Peter, knowing what Leviticus says, responds appropriately, by no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice replies again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And then verse 16 says, this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once. To heaven. The reason it happened three times was to validate this is what God wanted. Here's what's going on, guys. God, with the coming of Christ, was ushering in the arrival of a new way of interacting with and engaging with the Gentiles. With the coming of Jesus, these laws in the Mosaic Covenant had been done away with. There was nothing that was to get in the way of Jews fellowshipping to the Gentiles and getting the gospel to them. Paul, later on in Colossians, reflecting on this, says this in Colossians 2, 16 through 17. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with, God, or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Paul's given us a window in how we're to think about the Mosaic law in relationship to the new covenant. And, and in many ways, we look at the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic law, and we see they were a foreshadow preparing us for who? For Jesus, he has come and he has fulfilled the law. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit and explain a little bit more. But what we need to see here in this chapter in Acts is there is a pivotal moment going from the gospel, which has primarily been in, in the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to really getting ready to explode and expand in all directions to the ends of the earth. So let's pick back up. Let's keep reading here in verse 17. It says, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed. Let me just hit pause here. His mind was blown here. I, it's hard to convey. I mean, just, like Peter, a Jew who, like follower of Jesus now, but like been ingrained 
the Old Testament law. And in addition to that, the, the many ways the Jews around this time had added law upon law to make sure that they didn't break it. Because that was why Israel was exiled in the first place and kicked out. Man, they had broken God's law. And so, like, man, that's not happening again. And so they put a, they put a like, we're going to get nowhere near. And they put laws upon laws to make sure they didn't break it. It says, he was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. So as he is like emoji mind blown right now. It says, Behold the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. This is so cool. Look at this. Verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them Without hesitation, for I have sent them. Again, do you see God at work here? He sent these from Joppa. Now he's telling Peter, hey, I know you've just been mind blown by this vision, but hey, there are three men standing at the door. I have sent them. Go without hesitation. In other words, in light of what I've just shown you, I have made all things clean. Go. So what does he do? Um, let's keep reading. Verse 21. And Peter went down to them and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. We're here because there's a guy named Cornelius who's been told that you've got to tell us something. Can you imagine, like, Peter's probably fumbling through his words trying to figure out what he's going to say. Verse 23 says, So we invited them in to be his guest. We continue on, verse 30, um, in verse 23. It says, The next day he rose and went, went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Dude, Cornelius had packed this place out. It like, this is what God's doing, and I love this. Man, he, he invited all of his close friends and his relatives. We're going to hear what this guy has to say to us. In verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up. I, too, am a man. In other words, hey, don't worship me. I, I'm not divine. I'm not God. Ironically, we never see Jesus do that. But we see Peter do that. If Jesus wasn't God, he, he shouldn't have let them worship him, but he does. That's just a sidebar for free. Verse 27, And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? Peter makes explicit the uniqueness of this encounter along with the newness of what God is doing and how Jews and Gentiles are to be inter acting. Let's continue. Verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house, 
At the ninth hour, behold, a man stood before me, bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This sets the stage for Peter then, and he gives them the business. I mean, he, he now, as the Spirit prompts them, shares and just lays the gospel on them. And this is what he says. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all that who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who, um, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of living and the dead. To him, all the prophets Bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, I'm going to hit pause here. We'll pick up the rest of the story in a second. But I want to draw out a couple of significant implications and truths from the text here. The first one is this. Back in verse 34, Peter begins this whole, whatever you want to call, sermon or sharing by making this statement, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. None. No partiality. This is good news for all of us standing here. This is good news for every single one of your neighbors. God shows no partiality. Let me unpack this a, a little bit more. He continues, he said, but in every nation, again, we see the nations in view here, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, I'm going to come back in a second and explain that a little more, but I just want to note here that it seems on like a cursory reading here that Jesus maybe isn't necessary for these that just fear God among the nations. I'm going to come back and unpack that, but I just like it, it seems like well all you got to do is fear God and do what is acceptable as if you could like please God apart from Jesus. I'm going to come back in that in a second, but just just highlighting that. Um, so um, hang tight. The other thing I want to highlight in verse 36, he continues as for the word sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. God shows no partiality, and Jesus is Lord of all. And then what Peter does is he just preaches the gospel. He starts with the baptism of John. He goes to the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's poured on him. He talks about the life of Jesus. He did good, and he healed it talks about his death, dying on a tree, and then he's rose from the dead three days later. Now let me just hit pause here for a second. There's no coincidence. Did it strike you in verse 39 that he described the death of Christ in this way? They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. I mean, maybe we would think of hanging him on a cross. But we have this tree language here, which I want to take a sidebar for a second. What really makes somebody unclean? Let, let me just use Jesus' words to answer that. I, I've got it up here. 
in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says this, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And then we have this parenthetical remark. Thus he declared all foods clean. Most likely that's Mark adding this parenthetical mark to the reader now in light of what we know, in light of what happened here in Acts. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. I stand guilty as charged. Anybody else there with me? I am defiled because by my nature, I have a sinful heart. And so when I see the junk of my life come out, and by the way, I'm not perfect. I'm still growing more and more to be like Jesus. And so at times I still see junk come out of my heart as God is continuing to work and make me more like Christ. But that junk, that sin is a result of flowing out of the sin that is in my heart. And every single one of us are defiled. And stand unclean before God. This reference to the tree here is an allusion to Deuteronomy 21-23. Where it says, anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. Guys, this is the good news of the gospel. In Galatians 3, 13, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Was Cornelius already saved? Let me ask you this. Was Cornelius clean or unclean? The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Cornelius was a God-fearer, but he was still separated from eternal life. Do you know... Why God told Cornelius to go and find Peter? Because Peter had a message to tell him. And you know what the message was? Jesus died for your sins. Look at it. Go back to Acts 10. Look at verse, um, verse 43. Peter concludes this mini sermon by saying, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Cornelius, you can be forgiven by trusting and believing in Jesus. You know, I don't know where every single one of you stand today. But there may be some Corneliuses in this room. You may, you may be a person that says, you know what, I know there's a God. I fear, I, I worship a God. I, there may even be some evidence of good works, like praying continually to this God and, and the giving of alms. 
But if Cornelius had to bow the knee and receive forgiveness for Jesus, so do you and I. So I would plead with you, if, like it's not just enough to acknowledge that there is a God or to even do some good things like joining us today. And I'm so glad you're here. The message I hope you hear is what Peter told Cornelius, believe in Jesus and you'll be forgiven. You, yes. This is my story. I don't stand up here sharing to you because I'm perfect. I stand up here because I'm one who's been defiled and a sinner and have come to recognize my sin as ugly as it is, and yet look to Jesus because he paid and died on a tree for every single one of them. Past, present, and the ones I'll commit 20 or 30 or 50 years down the road. They have been paid for. So I'm not condemned, not because I'm good, but because Jesus is a great Savior. And that can be your story. And so if you're here today and you're like, Man, I want this forgiveness. What does that look like? It's really simple. I say simple, but it's hard. Because it's hard to, to really confess, I'm a sinner. But all those things we just read through in Mark 7, you know what we typically do? We try to minimize our sin and we want to maximize everybody else's. But to come to Jesus, you've got to look at the huge log that's in your own eye. You've got to look inward and you've got to say, you know what? I don't have it together. There is all kind of wickedness and uncleanness that comes out of my life. And, and you just cry out to God and say, God, I am a sinner. And there is nothing I can do to make myself acceptable before you. But I've heard the news that Jesus saves. That he died on a tree to pay the penalty for sins for even my sins. I believe that. God, forgive me of my sins. I place my faith in Jesus. It's in him, not in anything I can do. And God, help me to follow, trust, walk him the rest of my life. That's faith. That's confession. And that's following. I look back, and there was a time and day initially where I said, I'm a sinner, and I believed in Jesus, but I keep doing that every day. Even today, I stand here today, that rock that won't move is Jesus. I still today place my faith in him. In case you're still not convinced that Cornelius needed to place faith in Jesus, take, go to chapter 11. Look at verse 1. I'm, I'm going to cover the end of chapter 10 in a second, but let me cover this real quick. Chapter 11, verse 1, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. And, and the rest of these verses in 11, chapter 11, it's him just rehashing everything I've just read you. So I'm going to jump down to verse 13. In verse 13 of chapter 11, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and sent to Joppa. And bring Simon, who is called Peter. Look at verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. It's explicit. Here's why you're going to Peter. He's going to tell you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. So, Going back to chapter 10, verse 34, you may wonder, how do I explain that? First, let me quote Bach, this commentator who says this, The point is not that Cornelius earned righteousness as his due, but that his responsiveness leads God to send Peter to reveal more of God's way to him as the rest of the speech points the way to what Cornelius must now do. In other words, Cornelius, that's, we don't want to minimize, like, he, he, man, he's curious. About, there's a God, and there's a longing and a yearning. We know God probably put that in him, but we see him responding, and yet what does God do? God sends somebody. 
And I believe there's Cornelius's like this that, that are all over greater Boston and the nations. And God wants to send people to tell them, yes, there is a God. This, this God that you, you're fearing, it's Jesus. Respond to him, believe in him, and you will be saved from your sins. Now, i got to wrap up. Our Dan's going to kick me off the stage here. So let's see what happens here. Go to chapter 10, verse 44. It says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who had received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. I don't have a ton of time to unpack this, but, but here's what happened. What just happened here is the same thing that happened in Acts 2. Many have labeled this the Pentecost of the Gentiles. What happened in Acts 2? The Holy Spirit's poured out. People are speaking in tongues and they're extolling God. That same thing has just happened here. Now let me ask you this. Did Peter touch any of them? Did he lay hands and send the Spirit? No, this was the work of God. That's why Peter concluded, how can, like, there's no way to deny the gospel is now spreading to the Gentiles because this is what God's done, not what I've done. I'm just proclaiming, and it says there in verse 44, while he was still saying these things, man, the Holy Spirit just fell on them. God sent the Spirit. He poured it out upon them. Now here's what I want to do in like three minutes is I'm going to give you four implications for us as we leave today. I'm going to do it fast, so be ready. The first one is this. No one is good enough to be accepted by God apart from Jesus. This makes it extremely clear. And this is what we've seen throughout Acts. If, if the most morally upright people, the Jews, what was Peter's message to them in Acts 2? Repent of your sin. And now we see a God-fearing man. None of us are good enough to be accepted by God apart from Jesus. The second one is this. Jesus was cursed so that everyone might be saved. Now when I say everyone, I'm not like, Jesus' death didn't accomplish the salvation of everyone. But it's this message. You go back to Peter in Acts 2. He says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, what? shall be saved. Jesus has accomplished that. So he has broken down every dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. And guys, there should be no barrier keeping you from anybody on your street. No racial barrier, no physical barrier, no socioeconomical barrier, nothing. The third truth. God desires to save many Corneliuses in every nation. Look at chapter 11, verse 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who are we to stand in God's way? Instead of standing in God's way, let's be a part of his plan to see the nations come to faith in Jesus and experience eternal life. Here's the deal. I don't know who the Corneliuses are on my street. I don't have God's perspective. My role is to do what Peter did and to go as God prompts me to share Jesus. You know what? Sometimes we're going to face rejection. But other times we're going to see hunger. Our role is to share. So don't be surprised if you see rejection. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. But don't also be surprised if you see hunger. And then fourth, 
many of these nations live on our streets. I'll give you one example as the band comes up and wraps us up. In a month, we're going to have soccer nights. I collect data every year. You know who's going to be at soccer nights? It's going to be your neighbors. How about this? Of the 100% of the people there, let me just break that down for you. Roughly 45% will be white. 21% will be Asian. 21%. 11% African American. Multiracial, 10.5%. Hispanic or Latino, 6.6%. Other races, 5.8%. Native American, 0.4%. What's my point? The reason God, eight years ago, nine years ago, ten years ago, put Boston on Tanner's heart and my heart is this very reason. Boston has an opportunity like very few nations in the world. The nations are here. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't go, but guys, we've got to own this. As a, not every city has what we have. How cool would it be to see the nations that God has brought here to Tufts, to Harvard, to MIT, to get a job, whatever brings them here, to see them here and respond to Jesus and go back to their nations. We have this opportunity. You have this opportunity on your streets. Let's pray for this. Let's leverage this. God can save everyone on your street. Let's pray. Father, I've been super encouraged the past few weeks seeing your sovereign hand at work through the book of Acts. And God, I know that your spirit is still at work in this city and the many among the nations that are in our city. Some that have a hunger. God, we, we don't know who they are. We don't know where they are. But God, we just ask God, help us to, to, to just be available. To say, okay, God, if this is your will and this is your plan and, and we want to share and we want to hold out this good news. So God, I pray this week, for somebody in this room to have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with their neighbor. And God, I pray that it's a neighbor, maybe it's a local, but maybe it's the person who's come here from the nations. And they may only be here a few months. Maybe it's somebody at Tufts University with our interns staying this summer. They're here for an internship this summer, and they're heading back out. God, open our mouths to boldly proclaim Jesus. God, we pray that you would do the work of giving repentance. That